is a place where they'll pay you a thousand dollars for a kiss and fifty cents for your soul. podcast about celebrity deaths and the strange events in Tinseltown and beyond. We are your hosts, Megan Carpenter and Liz Shire. Here are today's headlines. Seattle's Kurt Cobain is dead of an apparent suicide. The lead singer of the enormously popular rock band Nirvana is dead. Apparently he was a suicide at the age of 27. The body of Nirvana's lead singer and songwriter was found today in a guest cottage at his Seattle home. The coroner says Cobain had been dead for at least 24 hours. Dead of an apparently self-inflicted shotgun wound, police say a suicide note was nearby. Did you get a chance to read it? I only read the bottom line, the bottom two lines said, I love you, I love you, to someone. Come as you are, listeners. This is the story of the death of Kurt Cobain. Seattle, Washington. 1994. On April 8th, Kurt Cobain's body was discovered at his Lake Washington Boulevard home by electrician Gary Smith, who had arrived to install a security system. Apart from a minor amount of blood coming out of Cobain's ear, the electrician reported seeing no visible signs of trauma, and initially believed that Cobain was asleep until he saw the shotgun pointing at his chin. A note was found addressed to Cobain's childhood imaginary friend, Boda. A high concentration of heroin and traces of diazepam were also found in his body. Cobain's body had been lying there for days. This discovery, while shocking, shouldn't have been unexpected. There were signs that this was coming in the days and weeks leading to the discovery of Cobain's body. Following a tour stop in Munich, Germany on March 1st, 1994, Cobain was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. He flew to Rome the next day for medical treatment and was joined there by his wife and fellow musician, Courtney Love, on March 3rd. The next morning, Love awoke to find that Cobain had overdosed on a combination of champagne and rohypnol. Cobain was immediately rushed to the hospital and spent the rest of the day unconscious. After five days in the hospital, Cobain was released and returned to Seattle. Love later stated that the incident was Cobain's first suicide attempt. A week and a half later, on March 18th, Love phoned the Seattle police, informing them that Cobain was suicidal and had locked himself in a room with a gun. 
Police arrived and confiscated several guns and a bottle of pills from Cobain, who insisted that he was not suicidal and had locked himself in a room to hide from love. Plausible, am I right? Love arranged an intervention regarding Cobain's drug use on March 25th. The 10 people involved included personal and musician friends and record company executives. The intervention was initially unsuccessful, with an angry Cobain insulting its participants and eventually locking himself in the upstairs bedroom. However, by the end of the day, Cobain had agreed to undergo a detox program. Cobain arrived at the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles on March 30, 1994. The staff at the facility were unaware of Cobain's history of depression and prior suicide attempts. That sounds like vital information that should have been passed along, but okay, continue. When visited by friends, there was no indication to them that Cobain was in any negative or suicidal state of mind. He spent the day talking to counselors about his drug abuse and personal problems, happily playing with his daughter, Frances. These interactions were the last time Cobain saw his daughter. The following night, Cobain left the facility under the guise of intending to smoke a cigarette, and instead climbed over a six-foot-high fence, escaping the facility altogether, which he had joked earlier in the day would be a stupid feat to attempt. He took a taxi to the Los Angeles airport and flew back to Seattle. On the flight, he sat next to Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses. Cobain, quote-unquote, seemed happy to McKagan. McKagan later stated that he knew from all of my instincts that something was wrong. Most of Cobain's close friends and family were unaware of his whereabouts. On April 2nd and April 3rd, Cobain was spotted in numerous locations around Seattle. On April 3rd, Love contacted a private investigator, Tom Grant, and hired him to find Cobain. Cobain was not seen until the next day. After the discovery of his body, a public vigil was held for Cobain on April 10th, 1994, drawing approximately 7,000 mourners. Love read portions of Cobain's suicide note to the crowd, crying and chastising Cobain. Love is really writing something for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the attic roar, the crowd begins, it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for Freddie Mercury, who seemed to love and relish in the love and adoration for the crowd. Well, Kurt, so f***ing what? Then don't be a rock star, you ass. Near the end of the vigil, Love arrived at the park and distributed some of Cobain's clothing to those who still remained. I'm pretty sure none of that would have fit me, but I still would have taken as much as I could have gotten. (laughs) I want those flannels. A final ceremony was arranged for Cobain by his mother on May 31, 1999. As a Buddhist monk chanted, daughter Frances Bean scattered Cobain's ashes into McLean Creek in Olympia, Washington. 
Yes, that's correct. His six-year-old daughter spread his ashes into a creek. We know how it ended, but how did things get there? Time to rewind. Donald Cobain was born in Aberdeen, Washington on February 20th, 1967. Also, that's my birthday, me and Kurt, birthday friends. Pisces Bond Run Deep. Mm-hmm. Me, Kurt, Rihanna, February 20th, the coolest people you know. Anyway, he was the son of waitress Wendy and Donald Cobain. His mom worked as a waitress and his dad as an auto mechanic. He had a younger sister, Kimberly, who was born three years later in 1970. Kurt was described as being a happy and excitable child who also exhibited sensitivity and care. His talent as an artist was evident from an early age as he would draw his favorite characters from films and cartoons such as The Creature from the Black Lagoon and Donald Duck. This enthusiasm was encouraged by his grandmother Iris Cobain who was a professional artist. Music inclinations ran deep in the Cobain family with a variety of aunts and uncles playing in bands. At age four, Kurt started playing the piano and singing. When he was nine years old, his parents divorced. He later said that the divorce had a profound effect on his life, while his mother noted that his personality changed dramatically. Cobain became defiant and withdrawn. In a 1993 interview, he elaborated, quote, I remember feeling ashamed for some reason. I was ashamed of my parents. I couldn't face some of my friends at school anymore because I desperately wanted to have the classic, you know, typical family, mother, father. I wanted that security, so I resented my parents for quite a few years because of that. That's rough, but sounds typical for a Hollyweird episode. Parents ruin everything. Cobain's parents both found new partners after the divorce, although his father had promised not to remarry. And parents never keep their promises. Right, he did. Cobain liked her at first, but that changed after she gave birth to Kurt's half-brother Chad. This new family, which Cobain insisted was not his real one, oh my god. (laughs) Jesus. Which Cobain insisted was not his real one, was in stark contrast to the attention Cobain was used to receiving as an only boy, and he soon began to express resentment toward his stepmother. His mother began dating a man who was abusive. Cobain witnessed the domestic violence inflicted upon her with one incident resulting in her being hospitalized with a broken arm. Wendy steadfastly refused to press charges, remaining completely committed to the relationship. Cobain eventually misbehaved and began bullying another boy at school. Eventually, his father and stepmother took him to a therapist who concluded that he would benefit from a single-family environment. When he was 12, Cobain's mother granted full custody to his father. The teenage rebellion quickly became overwhelming for his father, who placed his son in the care of family and friends. While living with the born-again Christian family of his friend Jesse Reed, he became a devout Christian and regularly attended church services. He later renounced Christianity. The song Lithium is about his experience while living with the Reed family.
did you know that lithium was about religion, specifically Christianity? I did not. And that's very interesting. It's kind of weird how we keep finding out all this new stuff. Like, every time something new surfaces about why Cobain wrote such and such Mm -hmm. a lyric, and that actually makes a lot of sense. Though I always, I never assume that because of the lyric, I'm so horny. Yeah. That was very shocking to me as, like, a 13-year-old. Like, (gasps) (laughs) what's he talking about? Yeah, I mean, he, so he talks about in the lyrics, um, he's found his friends, they're in his head. I wonder if that's a reference to the figures that are prominent in Christianity, if they're, if he's calling them make-believe, because he renounced Christianity. Oh. Mm. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. I mean, that is all completely valid, but then there's also, like, the theory, well, this is partially my theory, that, like, nothing that he ever wrote was really that profound and that it was all just kind of you know he played he always wanted it both ways like he played into his whole like voice of a generation thing when he wanted to but then when he didn't want to he would renounce renounce it but that a lot of his songs really don't have that much meaning at all or the meaning is just kind of like yeah i wrote it about this i mean he's a good lyricist yeah but how profound and meaningful are the songs is that that would yeah. summarize what I'm trying to say. Here we go. <laughs> okay. On his 14th birthday, Cobain's uncle offered him either a bike or a used guitar. He chose the guitar. Despite Kurt being right-handed, he played the guitar left-handed. That's interesting. It is interesting because left-handed people are so much cooler than right-handed people. Well, they use their right brain, which is more creative, (laughs) technically. During high school, Cobain rarely found anyone with whom he could play music. Then Kurt met Chris Novoselic. Novoselic's mother owned a hair salon, and the pair would occasionally practice in the upstairs room of the salon. A few years later, Cobain tried to convince Novoselic to form a band with him by lending him a copy of a home demo recorded by Cobain's earlier band, Fecal Matter. What if he was like in the bathroom taking a shit and he's like, I need to name this band. And then he like goes to like clean up and he's like, got it. I got it. Like wipes and looks down and he's like, yes. (laughs) My um, old roommate's boyfriend told me a story once that I will never forget that his band in junior high school was called The Jaundice. Why? Just like what 14-year-olds name their band. Fecal matter. The jaundice. After months of asking, Novoselic finally agreed to join Cobain, forming the beginnings of Nirvana. The band name Nirvana was taken from the Buddhist concept, which Cobain described as, quote, freedom from pain, suffering, and the external world. A concept that he aligned with the punk rock ethos and ideology. Meanwhile, during his second year in high school, Cobain began living with his mother in Aberdeen. Two weeks prior to graduation, he dropped out of Aberdeen High School upon realizing that he did not have enough credits to graduate. His mother gave him a choice, find employment or leave. After one week, Cobain found his clothes and other belongings packed away in boxes. Feeling banished from his own mother's home, Cobain stayed with friends, occasionally sneaking back into his mother's basement. Cobain also claimed that during periods of homelessness, he lived under a bridge on the Wishka River, an experience that inspired the song Something in the Way. Dripping's free. 
Nirvana bassist Nova Selig later said, quote, He hung out there, but you couldn't live on those muddy banks with the tides coming up and down. That was his own revisionism. Interesting. <laughs> so, like, uh, what does this say about Cobain's psyche that when he retold stories from his past he like spun them to create his own narrative well if you want to get really like existential about that everybody does that to a certain extent because perception is reality so like every like two people can experience the same thing but they have two different stories to tell about it that's true however what i would theorize is that cobain already felt like very rejected and abandoned by the fact that his mother just like kicked him out so the fact that he had nowhere to go he probably just expanded on that by saying like yeah i lived under the bridge like maybe he slept there one night but that's for him that's probably enough to be like yeah i used to live under there yeah and something in the way is such a depressing song my dad still to this day quotes it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings (laughs) to this day late 1986, Cobain moved into an apartment, paying his rent by working at the Polynesian Resort north of Aberdeen. During this period, he was traveling frequently to Olympia, Washington to go to rock concerts. During his visits to Olympia, Cobain formed a relationship with Tracy Miranda. The couple had a close relationship, but one that was often strained with financial difficulties and Cobain's absence when touring. Her insistence that he get a job caused arguments that influenced Cobain to write about a girl which was featured on the Nirvana album Bleach. Miranda is credited with having taken the cover photo for the album. She did not become aware that About a Girl was written about her until years after Cobain's death. Soon after his separation from Miranda, Cobain began dating Toby Vale, a member of the Riot Girl band Bikini Kill. After meeting Vale, Cobain vomited as he was so completely overwhelmed with anxiety caused by his infatuation for her. This event would inspire the lyric, Love you so much, it makes me sick, which appears in the song, Aneurysm. What the actual fuck, Liz, your thoughts? <laughs> um, that's really intense. I can't say that I've ever vomited upon meeting a guy that I was really into. So Kyle, my husband, and I, we <laughs> have this running joke where like, if one of us does something embarrassing, we go... What if this was our first date? <laughs> so That's actually really cute. <laughs> While Cobain would regard Vale as his female counterpart, his relationship with her eventually waned. Cobain desired the maternal comfort of a traditional relationship, which Vale regarded as sexist. So do you think his, he had mom, mommy issues? 100%. <laughs> Look, when your mom just, like, puts your stuff on the curb because you can't get a job after one week of dropping out of high school, like, I mean, that's pretty harsh. Yeah. And I feel like a riot girl is, like, not your um, your hyperbole mommy. Yeah, no. You're not there to, like, solve your mommy issues. Yeah. All right. <laughs> In 1990, they collaborated on a musical project called Bathtub is Real, in which they both sang and played guitar and drums. They recorded their songs on a four-track tape machine that belonged to Vale's father. 
In Everett True's 2009 book, Nirvana the Biography, Vale is quoted as saying, Kurt would play the songs he was writing, I would play the songs I was writing, and we'd record them on my dad's board track. Sometimes I'd sing the songs he was writing and play drums on them. He was really into the fact that I was creative and into music. I don't think he'd ever played music with a girl before. He was super inspiring and fun to play with. That's nice. That's sweet. Yeah. Cobain's relationship with Vale would inspire the lyrical content of many of the songs on Nevermind. Once, while he was discussing anarchism and punk rock with friend Kathleen Hanna, a number member of Bikini Kill, Hanna spray-painted Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on Cobain's apartment wall. Teen Spirit was the name of a deodorant Vale wore. Cobain, unaware of the deodorant's existence, interpreted the slogan as having a revolutionary meaning and it inspired the title of the Nirvana song, Smells Like Teen Spirit. That's literally the coolest fucking story I've ever heard. I have never, nor will I ever, be that cool. Did you ever hear the story of how Courtney Love punched Kathleen Hanna in the face? No, but can you please tell me? Yeah, they were like, I think it was either on stage or after a show, and she just like walked up to her and punched her in the face. And Kathleen Hanna says like to this day, I still don't know why she did that. I think she was just jealous like that I knew Kurt and like that I was trying to get with him. Because she was in Bikini Kill, too. <laughs> she also, you know, threw, like, all of her makeup at Madonna. Do you remember that? No. It was, like, it was, I think it was, like, after the VMAs or something. Madonna's sitting up in, like, some, on top of a building getting interviewed by, like, God knows who. And Courtney Love in the background, like, hey, hey. And she, like, starts throwing her compact up there and, like, her makeup. And she stumbles up. She's like, I Stop. Like, I'm here to say hi. Like, <laughs> all right, kiddos, fasten your seatbelts. Cobain and musician Courtney Love met in January 1990 at a Portland nightclub. Love made advances, but Cobain was evasive. Early in their interactions, Cobain broke off dates and ignored Love's advances because he was unsure if he wanted a relationship. Love first saw Cobain perform in 1989. They briefly talked after the show and Love developed a crush on him. Cobain was already aware of Love through her role in the 1987 film Straight to Hell. Um, straight to VHS. After being reintroduced in May 1991, Love began pursuing Cobain. By late 91, the two were often together and bonded through drug use. On February 24th, 1992, Cobain and Love were married. Love wore a satin and lace dress once owned by Golden Age actress Frances Farmer, and Cobain wore green pajamas because he had been too lazy to put on a tux. Red flag. What the hell? I actually never knew that that dress belonged to Frances Farmer. I mean, that's not the part I'm what the hell in. Oh. (laughs) What he like ignored her advances for like several months before I'm not surprised. 
Um, I guess we'll get married. I'll just wear my PJs. Look, she lowered her fucking standards. Like, I mean, that's... There are many, there were many red flags before <laughs> I'll wear my green PJs to our wedding. <laughs> Many people opposed the union, and some even vocalized that opinion to the couple. However, Love was already pregnant. I hate using the term shotgun wedding here, but shotgun. The couple's daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, was born on August 18, 1992. While Cobain and Love's romance had always been a media attraction, they found themselves hounded by tabloid reporters after a Vanity Fair article in which Love admitted to using heroin while pregnant, but before she discovered the pregnancy, was published. The Los Angeles County Department of Children's Services took the Cobains to court, stating that the couple's drug use made them unfit parents. Throughout most of his life, Cobain suffered from chronic bronchitis and intense physical pain due to an undiagnosed chronic stomach condition. His first drug experience was with marijuana at age 13. He regularly used the drug during adulthood. Cobain also had a period of consuming notable amounts of LSD, and he was prone to alcoholism and solvent abuse. Cobain's first experience with heroin occurred sometime in 1986, administered to him by a local drug dealer in Tacoma, who had previously supplied him with oxycodone. He used heroin sporadically for several years, but by the end of 1990, his use developed into a full-fledged addiction. Cobain claimed that he was determined to get a habit as a way to self-medicate his stomach condition. He said, quote, it started with three days in a row of doing heroin and I don't have stomach pain. That was such a relief. However, longtime friend Buzz Osborne disputes this, saying his stomach pain was more likely caused by his heroin use, saying, quote, he made it up for sympathy and so he could use it as an excuse to stay loaded. Of course he was vomiting, that's what people on heroin do, they vomit. It's called vomiting with a smile on your face. Uh, is, that, is this like the chicken or the egg, what came first, his stomach pain or his drug abuse? Um, well, I think it's documented that the stomach pain, like he, I read his, uh, the diary that was published, um, I think it was like in the early aughts, and he does complain about stomach pain in the diary, which was like in his like adolescence or early adolescence. But um, I think that that's plenty of people have chronic pain and don't turn to yeah. narcotics. It's also a really intense narcotic. <laughs> his heroin use began to affect the band's touring schedule. One such example came the day of the band's 1992 performance on Saturday Night Live, where Nirvana had a photographic session with Michael Levine. Having taken heroin beforehand, Cobain fell asleep several times during the shoot. Prior to her performance at the New Music Seminar in New York City in July 93, Cobain suffered a heroin overdose. Rather than calling for an ambulance, Love injected Cobain with naloxone to bring him out of his unconscious state. Cobain proceeded to perform with Nirvana, giving the public no indication that anything out of the ordinary had taken place. It's believed that Cobain had depression. His cousin brought attention to the family history of suicide, mental illness, and alcoholism, noting two of her uncles who had committed suicide with guns. But as stated on last podcast on the left, those might have been accidental shootings. It's time for Hollyweird Post 
Mordo. Kurt Cobain is an icon, but why is the story of the death of the man behind the facade one that lingers? Here's our best guess. Liz, Kurt Cobain was a unique rock star in that he was in it for the music and creativity and not the fame. Mm-hmm. Do you agree? Um, I think, like I said before, that he likes to work, work that when it worked for him. So I'm going to read you a quote from him. Okay. I wanted to have the adoration of John Lennon, but have the anonymity. 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 Why don't you read the quote? Okay. Okay, so the quote from Kurt Cobain is, I wanted to have the adoration of John Lennon, but have the anonymity of Ringo Starr. I didn't want to be a front man. I just wanted to be back there and still be a rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) I'll read that part. Rock and roll. (laughs) I just wanted to be back there and still be a rock and roll star at the same time. I think that we talk about this a lot, like, because we've covered a couple people that have died in the 90s or earlier about celebrity and how much celebrity has changed and that now more than ever is not possible like you are especially musicians are expected to invite us into their lives via social media and interviews and you know I just think he did get extremely famous um but that was first of all not unintentional and second of all like if he really didn't like it then he could have just stopped doing music like yeah yeah I liked it a little bit Right, and you honestly, like, people always contribute that to part of his suicide, that he, like, didn't, he didn't ask to be the voice of a generation and blah, 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 but first of all, I mean, how many musicians this day and age would kill for Nirvana-level success? I've talked about the market being saturated before, it truly is, and the way that um, selling music and performing music has developed, like, it's pretty much impossible to profit off of just record sales alone, you have to tour. Nirvana... I mean, their album sales alone far surpassed a lot of people who are who have sold a lot today. So I just think it's just kind of like a lack of perspective. Like, you really can't have your cake and eat it, too. Like, and also, it wasn't a bad cake to eat anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm famous. Oh, I'm famous. You have a lot of money. <laughs> like, it kind of just shows a lack, a lack of perspective, I think. Um... Okay, so talking about the genre, it can be argued that Kurt began the push for alt-rock music into mainstream. Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins referred to Cobain as the Michael Jordan of our generation, and he also stated that Kurt opened the door for everyone in the 1990s alt-rock scene. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, um, and honestly, I think Nirvana made way for Hole. I don't think that Hole... I mean, I, I love Hole as a band. I truly do. I think that their music is great. I like it more than Nirvana. But I think that his success gave way for her success. Yeah, I mean, that whole... You think early 90s grunge. You think Seattle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're just the face of that. Mm-hmm. And are they the face of that because they kicked down the m- most doors? Or did they just happenstance become the most popular? Um, I think it was a happenstance, but they also, I think that, well, I was going to say that Nevermind is like more pop, 
like smells like teen spirit could be categorized as like pop rock um because certainly like bleach and like in utero or not as commercial yeah for sure um i guess i don't i think it was just kind of like all right place right time kind of stuff like Mm -hmm. Man, we're not like taking a shit on Kurt Cobain, are we? <laughs> we look. We have a we have a podcast. This is our right. I mean, like lots of people have an opinion about him. He's he's kind of surpassed. Um, Francis Cobain said in an interview like that he he's so much more of a symbol now than he ever was. Like he is truly above like human level at this point. People think of him so much more as that. As something like above human. Yeah. Um. Have you ever heard the story of um, Courtney Love? She told us on her VH1 Behind the Music about, like, when she first met Kurt and they were, like, on a boat somewhere, like, some, like, I think on a ferry. And he was, like, sitting next to her and he was, like, they're playing my song on (laughs) K-Rock. Like, he was, like, trying to brag to her about how they were playing something from Nevermind on K-Rock. They're playing my song on (laughs) K-Rock. he was into it right that's the thing he wanted he wanted to have his cake and eat it too he wanted to play both sides all right so i want to hear what take you're gonna have on this but one would argue that kurt cobain is the greatest of all time and so some stats on that rolling stone ranked him the 12th greatest guitarist mtv disagree (laughs) mtv ranked him the seventh seventh in the 22 greatest voices in music maybe his voice was extremely unique Sure. Yeah. But guitarist, no. Um, 2006, he was placed at number 20 by Hit Parader on their list of 100 greatest metal singers of all time. I think that that bar is pretty low. I feel like they couldn't make a list of 100 metal singers, <laughs> so they were probably like, ah, uh, ah, uh, Kurt. <laughs> Do you know what metal singing is? <laughs> <laughs> like, the pig squealing? Oh my god. All right. Uh, I think that that is pretty generous. I think that he often gets glorified because of his death. Yes. And that people have a lot of sympathy and empathy for him. And because he was pretty open about his feelings, which I think is probably a benefit of his music, that he was able to connect with people who were struggling. But then his suicide is not. I mean... Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl look like they drive some minivans today. Like, they are straight dad mode. Like, he would... Would he be there? I think so. And then, would he still be so cool? No, because everybody ages out of being cool. Like... One notable thing, uh, Kurt was super ahead of his time in matters of inclusivity. He was outspoken on issues of gay rights, homophobia, and sexism. Uh, Which kudos yeah um he said he one time he said he wished he had been gay just to annoy homophobes that i mean that's a bit much that sounds like some eighth grade logic right there (laughs) well he didn't graduate (laughs) (laughs) well there you go something tells me that that was the influence of toby vale because um bikini kill and riot girl in general is definitely about feminism and calling out sexism something tells me that was probably her influence i mean he sounds open-minded to be the least which yeah gotta give him credit for sure um one time in school he befriended a homosexual student that was being bullied 
Um, and because of that, the bullies thought Kurt must also be gay. So mm-hmm. Also it, some eighth grade logic. <laughs> in an interview, he said that he liked being associated with a gay identity because he did not like people. And when they thought he was gay, they left him alone. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> he said, quote, I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't. And then he had a friend, um, a male friend, try to kiss him, and Cobain backed away, explained to his friend, oh, not gay, and, but they stayed friends. Um, in 1993, he had an interview with The Advocate, which is a, a mm-hmm. publication, um, and Cobain claimed that he was gay in spirit and could probably be bisexual. Hmm. I mean... I mean, he could probably be categorized today as queer. That's, like, yeah, what I mean, a lot of people so are... Yeah, there's so many terms that probably either didn't exist or didn't exist in mainstream then, like pansexual, mm-hmm. like stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe he would be categorized now as one of those things. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. I, I could take that. Yeah. I mean, he also... Like, so small in stature, and, like, he was kind of feminine-looking. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty, if you will. Pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Kurt said that one time he spray-painted God is Gay on pickup trucks in the Aberdeen area, but police records show that uh, they did arrest Cobain, but for spray-painting the phrase... Ain't got no how whatchamacallit <laughs> on vehicles. Like, I just feel like this dude is a fucking liar. <laughs> I think that, you know, we've talked about him kind of like cultivating his own image and the revisionist history for himself. And I think that's definitely part of it. It's like a, it kind of leans toward a self absorption. So, narcissist? I think he's more somebody who falls under the category of someone with narcissistic tendencies. Which a lot of people who are creative have because you think about your own thoughts a lot and you generate artwork and music and... But I'm pulling way back from he didn't like his little brother because he was also a boy and took away boy attention. Like... I think those are kind of normal sibling feelings. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Of like, I mean... But I mean, like, I feel like we just covered a couple examples of narcissistic tendencies Mm -hmm. throughout his timeline but Mm -hmm. then and i might be reaching here and if this sounds insensitive please cut it out and don't let me sound insensitive on our podcast but do you think he was aware of the impact that his suicide would have to me no i don't think that anybody i was very affected by the documentary the bridge which uh, if anybody is in a healthy place and is interested in suicide research, feel free to watch it. If you're not in a healthy place, don't watch it. Um, It filmed the Golden Gate Bridge for several months and captured, I think it was like 40 suicides. So they interviewed a young man who survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said in the moment where he was falling – Every se- everything seemed fixable. Like, he regretted it so much. Like, he wanted to just, like, reverse it all and not have jumped, and he survived. And I think that... And people who survive suicides do say that. Sometimes they're disappointed, like, immediately afterward that it doesn't go through, but, like, that was very profound for me, and I think that 
we've had we're uh, recording this when a couple recent of uh, significant famous suicides have occurred and I think that if those people could be around for what happens afterward and the pain that it causes their family members I don't think that they would do it I don't think that if he could have thought about it for a few more hours or seconds that he would have wanted to leave his daughter without a father but he tried suicide multiple times yeah like you would think after that like after the first one he would have the oh i'm a father oh this would devastate a b and c i mean i i have no idea what the extent of his depression and mental illness were and i can't really speak to the thoughts that were mm-hmm. going through his head but just to combat your argument a little bit i mean maybe he didn't have those um remorse or regrets Mm -hmm. because he had already tried it to counter i would say that is totally valid maybe if he had not been using substances and maybe if he had gotten help for the depression that he was suffering from he would have felt differently eventually that's true he he had attempted help for the drug abuse Mm -hmm. but he was self-medicating a different issue that he was not being treated for yes that's that's kind of like what I that's my theory yeah okay that makes sense but that trip to rehab totally seemed like he was phoning it in like agreeing with the counselors and like oh, yeah, yeah I totally want to get help like yeah yeah, yeah. and then Kurt. yeah I totally want to get help like I really want to stop using and <laughs> he sounds like a guy I dated <laughs> like yeah I really like I don't want to use heroin anymore <laughs> they're playing my song on K-Rock <laughs> sorry we should be laughing about it um, all right, so there's also the idea of, was this all destiny? And what I mean by that is so many people in Kurt's life thought that he wouldn't live to see old age. One example, Dave Grohl, Nirvana drummer. Um, he believed that Kurt would die at an early age, saying that, quote, sometimes you just can't save someone from themselves, and in some ways you kind of prepare yourself emotionally for that to be a reality. So it seemed like in the back of his mind, he knew that this might be the path that they were heading to, or that Kurt was heading to, maybe. Yeah, but then that's all said in retrospect. True. We're all much wiser in, in retrospect. Yes, definitely. Um, Dave Reed, who was a foster father for Kurt, said that, quote, he had the desperation, not the courage to be himself. Once you do that, you can't go wrong because you can't make any mistakes when people love you for being yourself. But for Kurt, it didn't matter that other people loved him. He simply didn't love himself enough. That's very um, moving, and I feel like that's more accurate. Yeah. As to what was that's true. going people on with him. around the world loved him, and so many more people loved him after yes. the fact. Um, but if he didn't look at himself in anything close to that same lens... Mm-hmm. there was nothing you could do yeah and there's definitely that thread of that um in his work and also like the way that he talked about himself even though he has this kind of like revisionist narrative going on to make himself seem more mysterious or that he's been through a lot of hardship it definitely does speak to somebody who suffers from low self-esteem who doesn't think greatly about themselves i'm i'm convinced i'm in the in the what's the word i'm looking for school of thought that people who abuse substances are no like there's no completely happy person who does that there's no completely happy person who attempts suicide or uses heroin like there's always something else going on 
and if they try to tell you that they're lying to you and themselves um let's talk about some nirvana song content so we touched a little bit upon how he was good with the words but maybe the songs weren't like that incredible but mm-hmm. um let me give you some examples so cobain wrote the song polly which is featured on nevermind after reading a newspaper story of an incident in 1987 where a 14 year old girl was kidnapped after attending a punk a punk rock show and then raped and tortured with a blowtorch um sorry i should have put a graphic warning on that trigger warning um she managed to escape after gaining the trust of her captor by flirting with him um and the song polly was written about that so after seeing nirvana perform bob dylan would cite polly as the best of nirvana's songs and was quoted as saying about cobain the kid has heart so i mean i guess we can find inspiration anywhere even in the most horrific Mm -hmm. things Mm -hmm. yeah that's not why i actually think that song is great um and then i remember so i'm sure you can probably cite the like year or part in your life when you got into nirvana mine was like junior high school um and my dad was a big nirvana fan when they were popular so he told me about the song that like he's like do you know why he wrote that song and he told me about the story which is horrible um but that song does have like a lot of meaning in it and that's exactly like what happened he like writes the lyrics so simply and it completely describe exactly what happened yeah. in, in the story it's almost like um their songs are more poetry with music all he wants a cracker think i should get off her first think she wants some water to put out the blow torch isn't me have a seat Another example, Patrick Suskin's novel Perfume, the story of a murderer, sidebar, that sounds like a book I would be interested in reading, Mm, Me too. Um, inspired Cobain to write the song Scentless Apprentice, which is featured on In Utero. The book is a historical horror novel about a perfumer's apprentice born with no body, born with no body odor of his own, but with a highly developed sense of smell and who attempts to create the ultimate perfume by killing virginal women and taking their scent. Interesting. That, that no longer sounds like a book I want to read. <laughs> <laughs> I was on board and then I wasn't on board. But I mean, what a random story to be like, you know, uh, you know it'd make a great song, guys? You know it'd make a great song, guys? <laughs> I read this book. <laughs> like, he kills them for their scent. And then he, like, doesn't have any of his own body odor. <laughs> Actually, that does really speak to Cobain's creativity. Yeah. Because he really yes. could whip up a song out of anything. That's true. Because I would never. Yeah. I could never.
Jermaine originally wanted Nevermind to be divided into two sides, a boy side for the songs written about experiences of his early life and childhood, and a girl side for the songs written about his dysfunctional relationship with Vale. It's a creative approach. Yeah, I like that. Um, while Cobain would regard In Utero for the most part very impersonal, on the album he dealt with his parents' divorce, his newfound fame, the public image and perception of himself... Uh, and Courtney Love on Serve the Servants, uh, with his enamored relationship with Love conveyed through lyrical themes of pregnancy and the female anatomy on Heart Shaped Box. So do we just want to talk about Heart Shaped Box? I love Heart Shaped Box. So according to Courtney herself, that's a song about her vagina. Yes, she did tweet that, and then she deleted the tweet. Um, She's deleted a lot of tweets. (laughs) (laughs) I read a story that Courtney Love kept artifacts from previous relationships in a box that was shaped like a heart, and Kurt found it and, like, couldn't, like, pull himself out of this depression that he fell into when he found her, like, love notes of relationship past this heart-shaped box, which Hmm. he said, I've been locked inside your heart-shaped box for weeks. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that... That lyric kind of lends itself to that, but that's also a story. And if she herself said it was about her vagina, then I'm kind of inclined to <laughs> go with that one. I I like the, um, like, Courtney Love keeping memorabilia from X's story, but something tells me that he he was the person that loved the least in the relationship, and, like, she was always the pursuer, so something tells me he wouldn't have been as he affected. He wouldn't have cared that much. Yeah, he'd be like, oh... <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's weird. <laughs> I don't know if this is a good Kurt Cobain impression. <laughs> I like it. Like <laughs> um, all right. So also just he's so cool because he gave zero shits about being cool. Yes. Which is the definition of being cool. Being cool. Right. Um, continued inspiration for other artists. Lana Del Rey, Blink-182, Justin Timberlake, and Jay-Z have all quoted Nirvana songs in their own lyrics. Um, Weezer once played an entire concert of Nirvana covers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's actually pretty cool. Uh, but as far as people sampling the lyrics, the lyrics are good. We've said that. This is the fifth time I'm saying Kurt Cobain was a lyricist. <laughs> yes, yes. So. Museums. Not, not a guitarist, as Liz would argue to Rolling Stone. Uh, 27 Club. Kurt Cobain. <laughs> <laughs> Cobain died when he was 27 uh, adding him to some significant company Uh, if you want to hear a series of the Holly Weird podcast devoted to the 27 Club and its members give us a shout because we'd be happy to at Holly Weird Podcast Twitter, Facebook, Instagram let us know I think we've been bantering just fine but this is what we have really been wanting to talk about yes i've been texting each other about forever yes which is the prolonged infatuations with courtney and more importantly francis bean cobain 100 percent. so do you think francis bean listens to hollywood podcast do you think francis bean listens to podcasts in general yes 100 percent. she's really smart <laughs> so you have to be smart to listen or if you listen to podcasts you are smart 100% listeners. You're <laughs> yeah, very you're smart. So smart guys. <laughs> um, I follow Francis on Instagram. 
fascinating. Her art is really cool. She's friends with um, Gerard Way of My Chemical Romance fame. Seventh grade me is going, oh my God. <laughs> the connections. Um, and Gerard Way's wife, Lindsay Way, is a really cool artist. She does cut paper stuff. She does a lot of stuff, but there was one cut paper show she did. They had like a, she and Francis had a joint show in LA that I, was really cool. I did not go, listeners. I Googled it. Um, <laughs> I love Frances. I think that she is very smart. She's very articulate. She talks about her dad um, and like Nirvana in general, very, very articulately like she's been to a lot of therapy and has a lot of insight. Um, in particular, all the stuff that happened with her mom, like she was I think she lived with her grandparents while her mom went to rehab, which was when she was like 11 or 12. This was in like the early aughts. Um, and she just did, she just has like a very clear perspective and very, very self-aware. I think she inherited from Kurt the I'm cool because I don't give a fuck about being cool. Yes, definitely. Um, actually, I where did I see this? It was like a video probably on YouTube or some shit like that. And it was Dave Grohl saying that he and the nirvana peoples got together with francis and they just hung out and like her mannerisms he said down to the way she smoked a cigarette was pure kurt that it was freaking them all out yeah she said that she was that she was sitting there like glumly smoking a cigarette and they were like that's exactly what your dad would have been doing and she said that apparently they had the same kind of like monotone voice i don't think she has a monotone voice but so do your <laughs> do your francis bean impression I don't think she has a monotone voice. She speaks normally. To me, she speaks normally. They're playing my song, K-Rock. <laughs> They're playing my song, K-Rock. I can't, I can't do a Francis. I can't either. I can't do a Courtney either. I don't even want to try to do a Courtney. She doesn't have... You a, did a Courtney um, accosting Madonna. A drunk Courtney accosting Madonna. <laughs> she did... I actually... Listeners, I was able to see whole... Um, in 2010, she was the only original member um, in the show. It was when the Nobody's Daughter album came out, which I actually like that album a lot. Um, but she was just like, I got my money's worth seeing that show. <laughs> it was, she opened with Violet, which was awesome. And then she, every between every song, I think, I normally don't like when artists do this, like when they talk in between songs live I think it's like oh my god like did not pay for you to tell me about how bad your tour bus ride was here but she just had gems every single time like one time she like she finished the song she goes did everyone watch my VH1 behind the music and everybody screamed she's like didn't my sister get so fat and I was like oh my god and then one time she like finished the song she was wearing by the way a giant white button-down man shirt um a bodysuit and then white underwear on top of the bodysuit and then a black pair of underwear on top of the white underwear and then fishnets. And she looked great. She looked amazing. And she stopped the song. She goes, don't it look awesome? And everyone was like, wow. And she was like, these underwear are $800. I'm pretty fucking broke, but I had to have them. And it was like, this is gold. There's no way she's pretty fucking broke. I know she's not. Well, do you know about like the whole conspiracy that she has about someone embezzling millions of dollars from her and Francis? No. She said this at the end of the VH1 special. I've watched it several times, by the way. I, I truly love Hole and I love her. Like, But that woman has the craziest set of crazy eyes. I think it's all calculated. 
I think that everything that she does has a purpose. Right down to letting Billy Corgan have a wing in her house. You know who I want to talk to? I want to talk to Ed Norton. Oh my god! That was okay. When Courtney, first of all, Courtney never looked better than um, 1998. Yes, when she was at the Oscars. <laughs> first of all, she was great in that movie. She's a really good actress, and that's why I think that everything that she does is calculated because she is good at acting. So you think she's she's smart? I think she's she really. She must listen to some podcasts if she's that smart. Do you think she listens to Hollywood, Courtney? I love you. <laughs> Anything bad I've said, I take it back. I think you're great. <laughs> I love Courtney. I love her so much. I think she's so entertaining. I, I mean, at at worst, she's entertaining. At worst, at best, she is. She's just like a genius. I know that's like a big word, but I, th- I just think that everything that she does. Oh my God, Megan's like, <laughs> Megan's cringing. I love Courtney. What? Tell me your thoughts on Courtney, and why you don't agree. Um, I, I agree with you. I think everything is calculated because she's not a great singer. No. Like, but she made herself famous. Yes, she did. You gotta give herself credit, or you gotta give her credit for that. She attached herself to a famous dude. Yeah. Had a kid. She is the brain power behind all those copyrights, which is the reason why she's got mad money mm-hmm. and, and why Frances has mad money. I mean, I think she's smart. I just, I can't. And if Frances Bean has, then that's all that matters. But I just can't forgive her for all the shit that went down when she had a baby. Oh, do you mean like doing heroin when she was pregnant? Yeah, or like <laughs> child protective services and I I also think she's somebody who struggled. Okay. I, Cause she is sober now. And I do think that she um well, that's what she tells us. And I do think that she gets a short end of the stick for being an outspoken woman. She's said that many times before. She definitely doesn't lend herself to being well-liked by the way that the things she says and the reactions she has. She's always willing to be the best and worst part of herself in front of us. And I appreciate that. Oh, Meg. (laughs) I just, I, I don't get it. I take I, I, so here's the thing though like you have the people who are so into Nirvana that they're gonna hate Courtney no matter what because she, yes and they, she's the Yoko right well at at best she's a Yoko and at worst they think that she killed Kurt right so I mean I just think back to the a few years ago the Nirvana um, Hollywood or not Hollywood Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction yes and it's her getting up on stage. To, to represent the Kurt part of Nirvana. And yes. she gets straight booed. Like, uh, yeah. I, and I think I'm just more... Um, hmm, if all Kurt wanted to be was a Ringo star mm-hmm. and be about the music and not the face, then everything she is doing counteracts that. So if, is it a huge slap in the face to what he really wanted? Well, I think if you subscribe to that belief, yes. But I think that we've examined how that wasn't necessarily... He said that, but that wasn't necessarily what he his actions yes. reflected. Yes, And I think that she helped him get there. Like, she, I think she was a big motivator for him in the fame aspect of his personality. Yeah, I mean, and I just think, too, like... He has guns and locks himself in the bathroom, and the cops are like, Kurt, what's going on? He's like, oh, it's my wife, Courtney. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my wife's being a pain in the ass. <laughs> I mean, 
Like, I, I don't know. I think I feel badly for him that that was what hitched to his wagon. But, but I also, I would have kicked his ass if he ever thought he could wear green pajamas at our <laughs> wedding. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe they were made for each other. Maybe. I guess it depends what documentary you watch. It really does. <laughs> we, do you want to talk about um, some documentaries that yeah. discuss? Because there is a lot. Do you want to start with Montage of Heck? Basically, what you need to know about Montage of Heck is it's one of the more recent ones, mm-hmm. and it was super profesh, mm-hmm. and it was on HBO, and one of the key contributors was Francis. Mm-hmm. So it was more of like... Um, it was more personal in that she was, um, you know, such a big contributor to the the final product of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a good one. Okay. Um, you have Soaked in Bleach, which is just a clusterfuck. Yeah, that really... I would love to know where they got their information because it was... So it was definitely biased, I think that they, so they interviewed um, people from Kurt's childhood who hadn't, first of all, seen him in 30 years or more now that he's been dead. And on top of that, like, weren't in his life when he did commit suicide. And they were all, like, up and down. Kurt wasn't depressed. Like, he was a happy person. He never would have killed himself, which is like. seven. (laughs) Yeah, like, you have no idea, first of all. And then I think, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm. I wouldn't say teen Courtney, but I do, I do favor her. Th- that it was very, I thought it was quite sexist and also quite biased towards her. And to imply that she killed her husband, which is crazy. And, like, the evidence doesn't even support that. So let's talk about what, what they did imply. So they implied that this relationship was falling apart. Mm-hmm. That they, that he wanted to, like, separate their assets Mm -hmm. with a divorce um fairly in that he was the breadwinner Mm -hmm. and he would walk out of the relationship the breadwinner Mm -hmm. and that he did not have a will Mm -hmm. so she orchestrated this suicide Mm -hmm. but it was actually murder done by a hitman yeah and they imply that it's the house caretaker so so that it all happened before he could get a will together, leaving her out of it. Mm-hmm. And before they, before he could file for divorce or anything like that. Right. So. <laughs> I think that her act, so they document quite well her actions um, in the days leading up to Kurt's suicide, which she like hired a private investigator and she's like going back and forth with the detective and, and all this stuff, which just. To me, it did not seem organized enough. That's the thing is like, while Courtney is smart, I don't think she's, it never comes off as like a super uh, get the paperwork done on time kind of operation. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the fact that I think she truly was looking for him and she was also a substance abuser as well. Like, I don't, I think that's why there's a lot of like confusion and stuff around yeah. what the facts are because both those people were abusing substances and their perspectives were very different. Kurt and Courtney is done in that same thing mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. It's, it basically is they're the Sid and Nancy of their generation and mm-hmm. um, also implicates that she had a part in what went down. Um, they 
They're both on Netflix. Go watch them if you want to know what we're talking about. Um, there's so many conspiracy theories mm-hmm. that surround his death. I mean, the conspiracy theory alone, like what kind of part did Courtney actually play? Mm-hmm. Uh, however, according to a spokesperson for the Seattle Police Department, that the police department receives at least one weekly request, mostly through Twitter, to reopen the investigation, but they get so many requests for this that they have to maintain a basic incident report on file hmm. of this suicide. Hmm. That's kind of nuts. But it just goes to show how many people don't think that this went down the way it did. A big reason people don't think it went down the way we know it to have gone down is because of how much heroin was in his system. Mm-hmm. So when they recovered the body and you know tested, he had... So much heroin in his system that they, that people believe he couldn't have had the wherewithal to load a shotgun, prop a shotgun, aim it in his mouth, mm-hmm. and pull the trigger. That he would have been too high, basically, mm-hmm. to achieve that. I think the documentary said that he would have been dead before he could, like, by the time that much heroin had hit his bloodstream, he would have had overdosed before you could even have done any of that. Mm-hmm. And there were there was like that cigar box where he kept mm-hmm. his drug paraphernalia and everything was found like put back in there. Mm-hmm. So like um, that would lead us to believe that he injected copious amounts of heroin, cleaned it up and put it away, mm-hmm. sat down, loaded a shotgun, propped a shotgun, aimed it in his mouth, pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. Which people are saying... No, and like I guess people are, people have done tests where under the supervision of a medical professional, given people that much heroin to see like what can they achieve, mm-hmm. um, and they've all come back as yes, it's possible that he could have done it. However, it's so dangerous to give them that much heroin mm-hmm. that they gave it to them over the course of like twenty four hours, mm-hmm. not all at once. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know what I think about that, but I mean, he obviously had a tolerance, mm-hmm. but I mean, you can't still tolerate all the heroin in the world. <laughs> yeah. I, that part of the documentary really was the only thing that made me pause mm-hmm. because it doesn't make sense. The counter arguments that I have are how potent and what was the heroin cut with? Because I don't know if they can really measure what exact, like what amount of it was opiates and what else was like you know Drano that's one two is he was a regular opioid user like he did have a tolerance and I've talked to some former opioid users who like could shoot up a whole brick and not OD who never OD'd ever I think it all depends on your your body composition I am not a drug expert (laughs) but that's a huge variable yes and then on top of that, I don't think I actually had another point. It's just those All two right. things. <laughs> so let's end on this. How would things be different if Kurt Cobain had sought help for his addictions and his depression and lived? Would Nirvana still be together? Would we have Foo Fighters, which is a much better band than Nirvana? <laughs> um, I really would like to think that he would have gotten help and gotten better i don't think nirvana would have lasted i don't think they would have lasted into actually you know what now that we just said that i think they were in the process of starting to break up mm-hmm. i read from chris novoselic said that mm-hmm. so they probably would not be together 
he probably would have done some like acoustic offshoot mm-hmm. projects and maybe have transitioned into writing or doing something else mm-hmm. but i think i think he still would have had a successful career and gotten the opportunity to be like a husband and a father that's always the part that's like the the big question mark is like when you have a kid mm-hmm. how would francis bean be different yeah it's so she's so insightful in her interview especially the one about montage of heck and rolling stone and like that she talks about like all of her perceptions of her father just like completely from other people that she doesn't have any memories of him and that really it's like not having a dad at all mm-hmm. and like it's just other people's memories and like that the he's been in her life her entire life but it's not as a dad it's just as this like huge symbol Wow. I'm telling you, she's really smart. <laughs> Francis, call us. Francis Bean could, like, email us, hollywoodpodcast at gmail.com, and be like, you guys fucked up my dad's story, and I hate you so bad. And my reply would be like, you're so cool, thanks for listening. <laughs> oh my god, thank you for listening. <laughs> you're listening all the way to the end. Francis, we love you. <laughs> Want to let us know what you think about Kurt Cobain? this podcast or let us know which celebrity death you can't get over email your feedback to hollywoodpodcast at gmail.com also please be sure to review and rate us on your favorite podcast platform thank you for listening to this episode of hollyweird follow us on instagram at hollyweird podcast to stay current with show updates and join us next time for no laughing matter when we examine the murder of a funny man who entered our homes every saturday night straight from the heart it's hollyweird podcast If you or someone you care about are struggling with thoughts of suicide, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-237-8255. One, two, three, four. Dirt, dirt. Dirt, dirt. Dirt, dirt. Dirt, dirt. Dirt, dirt.